Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. This week on the podcast, reporter Humberto Sanchez talks with Congresswoman Dina Titus about how D.C. is responding to the effects of the coronavirus pandemic on small businesses in Nevada. After that, I chat with intern Kristen Leonard about her reporting on food insecurity in the state and how it's evolving as we move further into the pandemic. At the end of the show, reporter and amateur chef Riley Snyder talks food tips and gives us a tip about potatoes. Before we move on, here's a quick update on where things stand this week regarding the coronavirus. As of recording this podcast on Thursday, May 21st, confirmed cases of COVID-19 top 7,300 statewide, and 378 people have died. But trends in coronavirus data continue to show encouraging signs as the state monitors infections amid the first phase of its economic reopening. So far, though dozens of new cases are still being reported each day, the percentage of positive tests has dropped sharply. It fell below 8 percentage points this week, the lowest level since March, and down roughly 4 points since the peak of 12.2% in late April. With improving numbers, many in the state's gaming industry are finalizing plans for reopening shuttered casinos. Several companies, including MGM, Caesars, and Boyd Gaming, announced this week they would team up with University Medical Center in Las Vegas to begin testing employees. Las Vegas Sands and Wynn Resorts have announced separate plans to do the same. Still, the economic toll of the virus continues to grow deeper. Unemployment data for the week shows Nevada's insured unemployment rate, a ratio of continued claims to jobs eligible for benefits, is now the highest in the country at 23.5%. Numbers released by the U.S. Department of Labor show more than 20,000 more Nevadans filed initial unemployment claims last week, a slight dip from the week prior. Nationwide, the insured unemployment rate stands at 17.2%. For more on the coronavirus pandemic, including detailed data breakdowns and breaking news updates, head to thenevadaindependent.com. And now here's an interview between reporter Humberto Sanchez and Representative Dina Titus. Uh, I don't know if you saw Caught Meet the Press uh, on Sunday, uh, but they take through all these statistics that really showed how crushing this has been for hospitality and leisure. And they mentioned that 7.7 million jobs were lost in April alone. And then when you include related businesses and industries, it goes up to 10.1 million. And Chuck Todd even mentioned Las Vegas. He said you could see how this would be an economic catastrophe for Las Vegas. So what, what... are we looking at in the next, uh, we, we have the Heroes Act that you guys passed last Friday. How, what's, what's, what's the next step? Well, I, I think the Heroes Act certainly helps. I, I, I was uh, supportive of it. I went back to vote on it. Part of that is to help people who are on the front lines with the hazardous pay mm-hmm. and the OSHA protections. And that's important because if we don't open up the right way, depending on science and healthcare professionals, we will have to start all over and it'll be harder and more expensive and take longer. And that's why I respect what the governor has been doing with the phased in approach. But you know, anytime the national economy is hurt, Las Vegas is hurt worse. We saw Right, we're spending the recession. It takes us longer to recover because people have to have money in their pockets to go on holiday. Right. But they've 
who got to be in a mood to go on holiday. And that's why it's so important for people to feel like they'll be safe to come back here. But yeah, um, you know, I chair both the gaming caucus or co-chair it with the Republican, the gaming caucus and the travel and tourism caucus. And those two things are really related. And we've come at this with a joint approach because people forget the ancillary businesses that support gaming, mm. whether it's the flower business or the lobster business, or it's, it's people in addition to those who actually work in the casinos. So uh, we've got to approach this more broadly. And it also makes the point that we often make is that every place has some kind of tourism. It might not be the Las Vegas Strip, but it could be I always laugh and say the world's largest ball of twine, but something that somebody comes to see. One thing I did that, that I got in the uh, CARES bill that I was happy about was additional funding at $1.5 billion for Economic Development Administration. Hmm. And that's that uh, was used to help businesses and distressed areas open up again, kind of like you saw in the uh, when the Gulf, the big oil spill in the Gulf, hmm. you know, the Gulf back in business, come back and see us. So hopefully we can use some of that money to reassure people and tell them, come back, we're back in business. And interesting, that whole uh, saga with the Paycheck Protection Program and how you guys managed to get uh, to overturn rules that, that kept small small gaming from participating. And briefly talking to Mr. Amaday, he he thinks that there's some kind of bias uh, in in Treasury uh, against gaming, legal gaming. Do you think that your bill to allow gaming to participate in in coronavirus relief of all kinds, past and present, do you think that still needs to be passed? Do you think that should be part of of Heroes or whatever comes next? Well, we the bill has been introduced and it's out there certainly talk to leadership about the importance of it. But Mark Amaday is right. There is a bias against gaming. It's not as bad as it used to be because gaming has spread all around the country. But after Katrina, they wrote specifically in the bill that gaming facilities did not qualify for any of that money. Now, it wasn't in the bill this time. That was some regulation added by uh, Treasury, and we had to get it out. So uh, the Congress didn't have that bias as much as the administration did, but we fight it every time. We look for little nuanced pieces of legislation or regulation that hurt the, the business. Do you think that uh, you'd still need to? It would be a good idea to just get it encoded in law that uh, gaming is is legit. Well, that wouldn't hurt. It'll be harder to get that passed now because the argument's going to be, well, this is already taken care of. But legislation is harder to change than regulation. So we're not pulling the bill. We'll move forward with it. And they've introduced a companion on the Senate side and all the delegation is behind it. So we'll see where that goes if we, if we can get it passed. There's just not much time left and the focus is going certainly on trying to get some kind of compromise out of the Senate for the COVID problem and then some of the appropriations bills passed. And what about marijuana businesses? I saw that they, the SAFE Act that, that allows them to bank in as, as any other business would was included in the HEROES Act. That, that was a pretty big victory for, for marijuana, wasn't it? And, and something that I, I know you've advocated for over the years. Yes, I was the first member of the delegation to actually come out strong and be part of that uh, cannabis working group. Uh, I was a co-sponsor of the bill that did just that for banking on the House side, introduced by a, a 
prime introducer was Perlmutter. Yeah. And so getting that in the bill was uh, was great because look how many businesses are here in Nevada. These are legitimate businesses. The state legislature approved it. The voters approved it. You've got a tr- tremendous amount of revenue that comes from taxing of them. So they should be treated the same way. And banking is the least of it. You know, that's just to make it safer and easier to regulate if they can do banking like anybody else. And, uh, and the Republicans seem to be, uh, I know Mitch McConnell said uh, last week that as far as the next uh, relief bill is, that his red line is liability protection for businesses. Curious to hear what, what you've heard from your businesses in your district. And uh, I know you, you where you stand with workers. Is there a need, do you think, for liability protection? Is there a concern for, for um, you know, meritless lawsuits that would overburden small businesses, as they say? Well, I've heard some from like the restaurant association or uh, a franchise association, but uh, you've got to protect the workers. That's what makes it fun is if the workers don't feel like they're safe. And so uh, that protecting the company from the workers, I think, is uh, that's not going very far with the Democratic majority in the House. I don't know if you saw the Nacho Daddy uh, letter or they, they tried to get people to sign a waiver as they were coming back to work. Did you see that? And then you have, do you have any thoughts on that effort? No, I didn't see it, but that's really kind of extortion. People need their jobs, and if they can't, you can't trade your health for your job. Mm-hmm. Those are all my questions. Uh, any any parting thoughts for you on your part? Well, uh, we're just working so hard. Yeah. Uh, everybody's working from home, but we get a hundred calls a day. People needing help with. Uh, unemployment or loans or you know where do i get my check uh, what do, how do i get tested all of those things so we're trying to really focus on uh, community service uh, constituent service that's always been kind of our hallmark and now more than ever i think it's important people are concerned about that you mentioned joe biden and the hunter thing that's not what people are caring about they want somebody to lead us out of this crisis and they know it's not donald trump because he's been abysmal and leadership there's no national policy even today and they trust that joe biden can do that so that's that's what we're hearing and that's what we're looking at well matt thank you so much for your time i always appreciate it and uh, and i will be in touch okay you be careful about that you too thank you As we move into phase one of the reopening of the state during the coronavirus pandemic, many Nevadans have faced uh, food insecurity. Our intern, Kristen Leonard, has been reporting on food insecurity in the state. Um, And Kristen's here with me now. Hey, Kristen, how are you doing? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Good. Um, And so I guess just to start off, you know, what what is food insecurity for those who don't know? I mean, obviously, I think the name kind of speaks for itself. You know, you're insecure about your food situation, but can you kind of explain it a little bit more in detail? Yeah, so a household that's not food secure doesn't have guaranteed access to a meal that's going to provide all of the proper nutrients for them to be living a healthy lifestyle. Okay, and and, and so a lot of people, when they think about kind of food insecurity, you think about food stamps, um, SNAP benefits, um, there are nonprofits like the food banks. How how do all of those work together and and what do each of them provide uh, Nevadans? 
So there are a lot of different programs available for families that are food insecure. There are ones that are run through different state and federal departments um, where they can get SNAP benefits or where the State Department will partner with nonprofits in order to provide food delivery for families that need access to these meals. And then there are also nonprofits that run independent food banks, which can receive state and federal funding, but operate independently from SNAP benefits and other federal programs for food insecure households. Um, I would say the two biggest ones in the state, for Southern Nevada, it's Three Square Food Bank, um, which serves the whole Southern Nevada area. And then in Reno, in the Reno Sparks area, it's the Food Bank of Northern Nevada. Those two organizations also partner with smaller local nonprofits. At the moment, Three Square is operating 43 emergency meal distribution sites in Southern Nevada and Food Bank of Northern Nevada, in addition to partnering with local agencies, is operating mobile harvest distribution sites, which travel and are very easy to set up and tear down and they operate for one full day to serve families in the area. Just going back to what we were talking about um, at the beginning of that question, what are SNAP benefits just for people who don't know? So SNAP benefits are for low-income and food-insecure families, and it's a monthly supplement that is provided by the government in order to allow these families to purchase food. There are often certain providers that will accept these benefits as a form of payment. Um, right now, they're operating a lot online. So Walmart and Amazon are two online providers that are accepting SNAP benefits in order to purchase groceries and have them delivered to homes. So getting into the numbers a little bit, what, um, you know, how many Nevadans are facing food insecurity right now? The United States Department of Agriculture puts out the percentages for food insecurity in states. And the most recent numbers from that department are from the beginning of March. So unfortunately, there's not an update that they've put out since the shutdown has begun and so many more Nevadans have become unemployed. Prior to the shutdown, 12.9% of Nevadans were food insecure. But food banks, the numbers they're reporting of their increase is showing an obvious increase, even though we don't have the USDA numbers to reflect the actual statistic. Uh, for mm -hmm. example, Food Bank of Northern Nevada, at one of their mobile harvest sites, before lockdown, they would be serving between 150 and 200 families in a day. On April 17th, the food bank served 980 families at just one of their distribution sites. And while that was the highest they've served so far, they've consistently been seeing numbers above 500 or 600 families at one location. Three Squares seeing something similar. Before the lockdown, they were serving about 1 million pounds of food every week, and they are now serving 1.3 million pounds of food per week. And they've seen a 67% increase in meals served just since lockdown started. So the numbers increased right away, but they've also continued to increase the longer this data shut down. Okay. And I mean, obviously, I think it makes sense that a lot of people are going out of work and they're needing to help financially and food insecurity and these food programs are part of that safety net. Are they at a point where they can sustain giving out this much food or are they struggling? Are they, do they need help? It depends on the organization. For the most part, the point they're at right now in Nevada, most of these food banks actually are receiving enough food. Their supplies are coming in slower than they normally do, but they have the amount of food they need to serve. What's going to be a problem for them is the amount of time that this increase needs sustains for. What the state has been saying is even if the state opened up and everyone went back to work, 
this period of unemployment is going to have continuous consequences for families that have lost that income. So even those who now have a job again are still going to need services from these food banks. For example, Three Square traditionally provides 18,000 meals per week to schools in Clark County. So in August, if schools are fully open and they have to go back to serving those 18,000 meals on top of the extra 30% of food they're giving out weekly because they have this increased need, that's when there's gonna be an issue. So while currently they have enough food to sustain, the problem is how much is it gonna increase going forward? How long is this need going to sustain for? And how are they gonna go back to their normal operations on top of this added insecurity for Nevadans? Um, and I know in a story that you and Daniel Rothberg worked on about kind of the food banks and, and food insecurity in the state, you guys also talked about um, some farmers around the state that are kind of helping out people um, in certain ways. Are, are they part of any of these programs or are they just doing this as like community service? For a lot of them, it is community service. The way that these food banks get their food, it's often through programs that these farmers aren't necessarily associated with, or if they are, it's because they're selling and it gets to grocery stores and then the food banks are rescuing from those grocery stores. But for the farmers who haven't had the same demand for their products, a lot of them are being very generous. There are farmers that are donating milk to food insecure families, are offering to let them come pick it up. So even if there's not a demand for their product in our state right now, they're not just dumping that excess product. They're finding ways to be helpful and to serve the community with it. Okay, so what is this going to look like going forward, you know, as we move further into phase one, hopefully phase two, phase three, however many phases there are in this reopening of the state and hopefully moving past coronavirus at some point, what is food insecurity going to look like in the state? So we only have numbers for that right now for Southern Nevada, but the chief operating officer of Three Square, who is working in the field, working with these clients, um, has observed that prior to lockdown, the Southern Nevada numbers specifically showed a 12% rate of food insecurity for families in the region. Going forward, that's gonna be about 13 or 14%, which could mean an increase of 50,000 to 75,000 Nevadans just in Southern Nevada who are food insecure. So even a 1% increase is going to lead to tens of thousands of families who need more help with food going forward. Uh, and so my last question is just kind of the safety of all of this, right? Uh, social distancing is important, but if you have to go pick up food, you obviously have to go out to get it. How are these nonprofits and organizations kind of enacting social distancing and helping keep people safe and, and uh, you know, away from coronavirus as much as possible? A few organizations have developed delivery programs. Three Square didn't previously have a delivery program, but they are operating that now just to get food directly to families without them having to leave the house. Um, Delivering with Dignity is a program that was started right at the beginning of lockdown. It was not in existence at all previously, but there was a need seen for it. And so it was developed in order to deliver food to people who are considered high risk. And so it's not safe for them to leave the house. Most in-person meal sites are now drive through So people won't even get out of their cars. Volunteers are wearing gloves and masks and they'll place meals in the back of people's vehicles in order for them to take those home. Um, In addition, Three Square and Food Bank of Northern Nevada have cut the amount of volunteers that they have drastically in order to maintain distancing at their facilities. Three Square, for example, the building that they were previously using to package meals for the school district has been shut down so that volunteers aren't working in those close quarters. 
But when they do have to begin packaging those meals for schools again, they're worried about how they're going to maintain proper distancing, but still be able to get those meals prepared quickly enough to get them to schools. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kristen, for joining us on the podcast and for kind of breaking down all of this that's uh, going on in the state. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. All right. And so we are at the last segment of the podcast and I am joined by reporter Riley Snyder. Hi, Riley. Hey, Joey. And you are kind of the the resident amateur professional chef here at the Indy. Um, I think you're probably the best cook out of everybody. Um, you know, I'll agree with that. Well, if Elizabeth's <laughs> listening, she'll probably be mad, but you know, I do enjoy spending some time in the kitchen. I don't know if I've ever had Elizabeth's cooking, so I can't say for sure, but I have had your cooking and it's very good. And so we figured we'd ask you, uh, you know, a lot of people are inside. A lot of people are cooking right now for themselves. They're not going out to restaurants as much. Um, hopefully a little bit more now that the state's reopening, but probably still a lot of at-home cooking. And you have an easy potato recipe for us. Um, that's all I know, actually. So please, please tell me more about this, this spud recipe. Yeah, well, it's not easy, but um, oh boy, always loved hash browns, any kind of breakfast potatoes. But a lot of times when you go to a restaurant, I feel like they're soggy or they're not as crisp as you're looking. So a while back, I was trying to find like a good recipe for roasted potatoes. And I came across a recipe on the website Serious Eats put together by J. Kenji Lopez Alt, who's the big food nerd who really gets into the science of why things get crispy, what's going on on the molecular level. That stuff isn't that important or interesting, at least probably to our readers, but um, he has a recipe called the best crispy roast potatoes ever. Um, I've actually seen it like show up on weird TikTok videos, like it's kind of just floated around um, the internet, but there's a few tricks um, to what he does. So first off, he uses russet or Yukon gold potatoes. You wanna cut them into relatively large chunks. You need to parboil the potatoes first, and you need to parboil them with salt and baking soda. What does that mean, parboil them? So parboiling is when you um, cook something in water, like boiling water, for a small Mm -hmm. period of time, and then let it like finish cooking in another um, like source of heat, so like in a saute pan or in the oven. So this ensures that they um, are like soft and creamy on the inside while they can still get crisp on the outside. Otherwise you'd have crisp potatoes on the outside and uncooked potatoes on the inside. So they just cook for about like 10 minutes and then you take them out then you mix them with uh, some olive oil that you've heated up um, with garlic and rosemary or whatever else you want. And you just kind of mash the potatoes together until they get these like nice little uh, potato chunkies. And yeah, then you just put them in the oven and then let them sit there for a long time. I usually want to go like close to an hour just to let them get brown on each side. What temperature? 450 Fahrenheit. Okay. <laughs> Are you taking notes? I'm taking notes. Um, you can find this again. The name of the recipe is the best crispy roast potatoes ever on Serious Eats. And they are the best potatoes I've ever had. It's hard to go to um, diners or get breakfast food, I guess, takeout now. But just it's like the potatoes are just sad and soggy compared to what you can do in your home kitchen. So, all right, cool. Well, thank you so much for your for your recipe, Riley. And uh, if any of our listeners try making it, uh, please let us know what you thought of it. And uh, I'll try and make it and report back soon. That's a lie. He's not going to do it. Don't well, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make my top ramen for dinner, and then I'm going to make these potatoes. <laughs> you better get started because it take like an hour and a half. Oh boy, maybe tomorrow I'll do it. All right, Riley. Well, thank you for being on the fun segment. 
No problem. Thanks, Jerry. Potato skins, potato cakes, hash browns, and instant flakes. Baked or boiled, or French fried. There's no kind you haven't tried. You planned a trip. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Congresswoman Dina Titus, Humberto Sanchez, Kristen Leonard, and Riley Snyder for being on the podcast this week. If you like the podcast, you can find more of it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you listen. Our website has a nice new podcast player if you click on Indie Matters on the sidebar. If you would like to support our reporting on everything Nevada politics, policy, business, education, and more, you can do so by clicking the Support Our Work button on the top of our site. And of course, if you have comments, criticism, or praise, you can email us at joey at the or jacob at the People with Bodies wrote our original theme song, and you can find more of their music on Spotify or Bandcamp. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And I'm your host, Joey Lovato, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you.